This is Our Voices on the Yard. Welcome to Our Voices on the Yard, where Black artistic excellence meets everyday life. I'm your host, Denise Woods, and I'm going to take you from the Black church to the bright lights of Broadway, from tiny music studios to the mega stages of international opera houses, from rustic dance studios to ornate vaudeville theaters. Join me as we explore and celebrate the achievements of the Black artists that attended conservatories and fine arts programs around the world, starting with my very own, the Juilliard School. This is Our Voices on the Yard. Hi, I'm Denise Woods, and welcome to Our Voices on the Yard. Well, today we have Maestro. (laughs) We have a musician extraordinaire by the name of Richard Alston. Richard was at Juilliard when I was at Juilliard in the 70s. And those of us, every decade, we kind of like to say, well, what was your Juilliard like? Uh, my Juilliard was like such and such and such and such. And, uh, our Juilliard was like such and such and such and such. Well, our Juilliard was like. So we we sort of do this one upsman thing, meaning either either way, ours was so much worse than yours. <laughs> Or ours was so much better than yours. But the one thing that is consistent from decade to decade is that we all relied on each other. We all held each other up. And that was interdisciplinary as well. It wasn't just the drama kids who stuck with the drama kids. Richard Alston was perhaps the most extraordinary pianist that I knew at Juilliard because he hung out with the actors. <laughs> Usually musicians of that ilk, they are holed up in their practice room practicing 24-7 or they're with other musicians. But for Richard Alston to hang with the dancers and the actors, it, because it, it, was a, it was a similar kind of upbringing. We all came from the black church. That's a theme that keeps running through these these wonderful interviews. The church. How did you start? I sang in the choir. How did you start? I played for the choir. How did you? Th- I, I did this. We went to Broadway shows. My church went to. It. 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 The conversation is just so beautiful, and the a wonderful thread and through line for all of us is the Black Church, and Richard Alston has been and is the music master of the minister of music at at several churches, famous churches. So was his mother. So is his grandmother. He comes from a line of just wonderfully gifted, prodigious musicians. And the wonderful thing about it is that he knows his lineage. He can go back generations and generations. And because of that, he does this extraordinary homage to Black composers from the 17th and 18th centuries. And I think you're going to want to listen to this interview because it's not only fun and revealing because he he tells me things that he has said. Denise, I have never shared this with anybody in an interview. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. He becomes extremely personal and very vulnerable. 
but also he he's a historian and he's an historian when it comes to our culture and how far back our culture goes that we have no knowledge of. And so he's important. He's extraordinary and you're going to enjoy him. There's also a wonderful little known fact now that we're on this extraordinary musicianship here. There's a little known fact. Most people know this, but not everybody knows this. Miles Davis went to Juilliard. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that was years before Juilliard had a jazz program. I mean, decades before Juilliard had a jazz program. So he was a classically trained musician. I just thought you needed to know that because some of the greats that that went through the program that, again, opened the door just a bit so that musicians like Richard Alston could come in the 70s is just unique because Miles was there in the 50s and Richard was there in the 70s. And that's what this program does. It connects the dots. It connects the lineage. So we go, oh, that's how John Batiste you know John Baptiste? I think you do. I think you do. That's how John Baptiste got here, because of the brothers that came before him. So, enjoy. So, Richard, my first question to you is, out of this entire impressive bio, the thing that really touches my heart is the first person or thing that you mentioned is this woman named Dorothy Early. Tell me about Dorothy Early. Well, Dorothy Early was actually my second piano teacher. My first piano teacher was my grandmother, Nanny. Daisy Johnson was her name. And from the time I came out of the womb and was brought home from the hospital, she took care of me while my mother was nursing at the hospital. My mother was an RN. Mm-hmm. And she, my grandmother, Daisy Johnson, was a pianist. She was a church musician. Everything that I'm doing now, she did. She taught music. And unfortunately, she died when I was five years old. And so my parents were looking for a teacher. My father was told that there was a local teacher named Dorothy Early, but she would only accept students if they were six years old. I was five years old. So my father had to tell a little fib, and she began teaching me. I remember my first lesson like it was yesterday. My first recital piece was... Why I remember it after all these years. She would give a recital every April. So this is my musical knowledge, minimal though it may be after all these years. Are those arpeggios? No, it's just the five keys on the five black keys. Oh, that's it? That's it. Okay, okay. Just the five black keys. I love the piano. I love the piano, I think, from the very beginning of two or three years old. I loved my lessons. I remember so many things. I remember the very first time I played two notes at the same time. Now, this sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. I was in the John Thompson piano series, and in book one, grade one, the first piece, you play a C below middle C and an E above middle C. The the interval is called a 10, but I didn't know anything about theory. I just knew when I played these two notes, 
something happened to me. Something went through my body. It was so beautiful mm. because prior to that, the hands would only play separately. So mm. when I heard these two notes that I'm playing right now, it was heaven. And I remember my lessons with her. I would hear music. My father and mother were extremely supportive, extremely. My father began buying me classical records when I was six years old. One of the first records he bought me was a recording of great composers that was published by the Disney company. And they had Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and Haydn. And I remember hearing... That was how the Bach segment started. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. There was also a magazine called Highlights, Children Magazine. And every issue, they had a piano piece. Yes. Every issue, there was a piano piece. And they later put all the piano pieces in one edition. And my father ordered it for me. And so he was very, very supportive. Because I would always ask him when I heard something, was that classical music? There was an old pop tune called Love is Blue. And it started with a harpsichord. And, and I said, is that classic? He actually took me to a record store and bought me the music. There was, <laughs> there was an R&B hit called Lover's Concerto. How gentle is the rain that falls from... Yeah. And we won't even talk about television because on Tom and Jerry playing List, but my favorite, if you say uh, my favorite television connection was two things. And this is what caused me to want to be a concert pianist. I saw Andre Watts make his debut with Leonard Bernstein on television. Oh my gosh, that was legendary. And I saw a young boy like me who looked like me. And therefore, I knew I could do it because he did it. The other was Liberace. And I didn't know about Liberace's television shows. He made a rare movie called Sincerely Yours, which he acted. He played a concert pianist. And when he played for these people, they loved his playing. They were so appreciative. So those were the two things that said, I wanted to be a concert pianist. And I remember Ms. I told uh, Miss Early, Aunt Dorothy, as I later called her in years, Aunt Dorothy, and I would bring her music. I could play by ear. And if I couldn't play it, I would hum it. And I remember one lesson that I hummed a, a, a piece that went da 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 My father gave me an Arthur Rubenstein recording, and he played a Schubert impromptu. And when I hummed it to her, she began playing it. I said, "That's it. That's it." You serious? Yes, I remember all of this. This is. Absolutely wonderful. It brings me to Miss Early. Legend. Yes. Can you talk a bit about her? And we'll come back to you because these early years are gems 
are priceless. And the fact that your parents saw it and they nurtured it because it was where they came from. They came from um, musical families, no doubt. Your well, the first thing, father? my father was told that she was a graduate of a Juilliard school before I even met her. So he, he knew that. And so I began studying with her. And I remember being in her home. She lived on the second floor on this street in East Orange. She would talk about her Juilliard years only from the standpoint of there was one young lady who was a piano student that she knew. I can't remember her name. She spoke of how brilliantly she played. But then she had a classmate. Oh, you're giving me goosebumps. His name was Erwin Freundlich. He was her classmate. Erwin Froelich became my first teacher at Juilliard. Oh, my goodness. Just realizing all of the connections to this. He was my first teacher at Juilliard, Erwin Froelich. And, mm -hmm. and she knew him from being in Juilliard when she was there as so a classmate. This clearly is an example of the theme of this show, the shoulders upon which we stand. Oh, yes. We stand on Dorothy Early's shoulders. Yes, yes. How what was her background? How did she come to classical music? Where was she born? That I don't know. I guess I'll go have to go to Ancestry.com like I did for my great-grandfather and find that out. I knew her father's name was John Early. That's all I knew. She was a member of Calvary Baptist Church in East Orange. That's where she gave her recitals every spring. Mm -hmm. And um, But I don't know anything other than that and you know about her. Juilliard years. That's all I knew. Did she have a handful of children that came and studied with her? Did oh, she, yes. She did had a whole did a she stable. Have adults? She had a whole stable of children because we played all played the recital every year. And one of the things that she did was she would send some of her students, including me, for a, I guess you would call it evaluation. We had to learn pieces. And then we would go in the spring and play for this committee. And it was Music Educators Association. And they would either give us a gold certificate, a silver certificate, or a white certificate. The three times I went, I always got gold. And I still have them. You do? I have my gold certificates. They're in the other room. So this is, this is fascinating. Fast forward. What was the audition process like for Juilliard? Well, okay. I had already been performing. I made my debut at Lincoln Center. December 15th, 1974, playing Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto with orchestra. So I was already performing and had done recital. So remember the audition a lot. Remember what I played. But one of the things that I still have is right behind me. This was my lesson book that my teacher, Sylvia Rabinoff, wrote my assignments in when I was 13. Would you come over to New York City from New Jersey yes. to study with yes, her? Yes, because I, when I turned 12, my father saw that I needed to do another teacher. I was doing wonderfully with Dorothy Early, but he, through a connection, found a woman named Sylvia Rabinoff, who was a concert pianist, and I auditioned for her. The audition was three hours. Yes, yes. But before I could audition for her, I had to know all my major scales, all the minor scales, all the arpeggios, major and minor. The gentleman who was the link to introducing us came to my home every, every morning at 7 a.m. because he was school teacher, would prepare me for the audition. So the Juilliard audition, 
I honestly don't remember a lot about it. I remember more going to the old Juilliard school because my father took me on a New York excursion. He wanted to show me the Juilliard school. He wanted to show me Carnegie Hall. And so when we went to the old Juilliard school, it was uptown on Claremont Avenue. And they told us they were beginning, to, they were building the new one. It was almost done. So I remember that more. And they gave me a gray catalog. I remember the color. And I remember they said, you know, all the major scales, an octave apart. And I was a little confused about that because I was 12 years old, 10 years old. The audition, I don't remember much really about the audition, to tell you the truth. I guess because so much was happening, I had just played at Lincoln Center. That was in the fall of 74. So I guess I auditioned that January of 75. I remember exactly what I played, but I guess because so much was happening, I don't remember that. And I don't remember performing at Avery Fisher Hall that much either. I guess because I was so focused, I remember more playing for a, a lady who auditioned for the master's program years later. I accompanied her audition. I remember that her audition when I remember mine. But if you ask me about remembrances of Juilliard, I remember during my sophomore year, the as you remember, the cafeteria was on the second floor. And my sophomore year, I got out of the elevator and I turned around, I looked around and I said, I'm here. The reason I did that was I had read so many stories and heard from so many people that they wish they realized where they were at a certain time in their life mm. because they didn't appreciate where they were. And I knew I could never say that because I said, I'm here. Therefore, I knew where I was, okay? I could never look back upon it with regret that I didn't take advantage of everything. Because if I didn't take advantage of everything, it wasn't because I didn't know where I was. But I will say this. I'm going to give you a scoop. I thought about this the last two hours, whether I was going to mention this or not. I have done several interviews. I have done an interview with, with PBS that's on my YouTube channel, several. And what I'm about to discuss with you, I have never, ever discussed with anyone. And you're the first time I'm sharing this. I start off by saying that I was a very lonely kid between the ages of 12 and 18. Mrs. Rabinoff had asked me, do you want to be a good piano player or do you want to be a concert artist? And I knew I wanted to be a concert artist. I was 12 years old. And I began practicing three, four hours a day. I was very lonely, very lonely because students my age, peers my age did not understand me. I love music so much. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about it every chance I got. So I was called names. I was the sissy, but was extremely lonely. As I said, I made my debut in fall of 74. I played with orchestra that spring at Brevard Music Festival. It was my third time. And I was about to enter Juilliard the fall of 75. In August of 75, I met someone. And I was just blown away. I 
have never discussed my sexuality. So you're the first one. I knew who I was. Thank you. And I met this guy. He was just a year older than me. And I was just totally captivated. He loved music. He was a musician, very intelligent, very intelligent, not bad looking. (laughs) (laughs) And that Labor Day weekend, before I went to Juilliard, we actually went to New York on a date. I had never gone with someone like to a movie. And we went to a Little Rascals Festival in the village. I remember it like it was yesterday. The reason I mentioned all of this is because we both fell in love. I was starting Juilliard September 75. I had fallen in love September 75. These were two extraordinary adventures that I was about to go on. And I had never been in love before. I had never been in a relationship before. And so balancing now this Juilliard experience, I had a companion. I was just blown away. Unfortunately, in October, he had to end the relationship with me. I was devastated, Denise. I was devastated. I actually didn't want to go to school. Of course, yeah. I'm sharing this because, you know, we live in a a very strange time right now. Yes. You mentioned standing on Dorothy Early's shoulders. I'm sharing this because someone may need to stand on my shoulders. Yes. I'm sorry. There might be a young person who was experiencing what I experienced as far as who they are. And so I had to share this because we're talking about Juilliard. This was a major part of my life. Juilliard was a major part of my life. This relationship was a major part of my life. At the same time, it was mind-boggling to me. It was mind-boggling. We ended up getting back together because, in fact, I'll tell you, I mentioned I didn't want to go to school. And my parents have been supportive of me through everything in my life. Mm -hmm. And there was one day where I was in my bedroom, the lights were out, the shades were closed. And my mother came in and she knew what had happened. They knew about me. And she said, well, look at you. What's going to happen if you reunite? What is he going to find? He loved your music. You're talking about giving it up. I couldn't believe she said that to me. And fortunately, unfortunately, I got up and I guess, unfortunately, like Madam Butterfly, I was waiting for that one fine day. And it did come. It did come. And I had to share this because I thought about this. I said, you know, people have always told me I need to write a book. And I said, it was going to be several volumes. And there might be the church volume, there might be the concert volume, (laughs) there might be my personal life volume. And so when I thought about you wanting me to talk about Juilliard and my life there, I said, I have to include this. I have to be truthful. It's so beautiful. And I'm so grateful that you shared it with me. I'm so glad that you shared it with us because I did wonder 
You said when you got to your sophomore year, you got off the elevator and said, I'm here. And I did think, why did it take the entire freshman year? Why didn't he get off the elevator in his freshman year? And this answers why. Yes, yes. These are just wonderful, wonderful nuggets of the culmination of who we are as not just artists, but as people. Yes. Someone standing on your shoulders. A lot of people are standing on your shoulders because I came in in the fall of 75 as well. And I remember seeing you in the elevator. I I remember how studious you were and how proud I was of you. Because I don't know, was there another black pianist? Yes, there was a woman who was a year ahead of me or two years ahead of me. In fact, she was a student of foreign looks also. I can't think of what her name was right now. Our class, because I came in in the fall of 75. We're in the same class. Right. She must have been in the class of 74. Okay. Before me. And then there were two black guys who also studied with Freundlich. So he had, they, they were counting me, there were four pianists, four wow. African-American pianists there. I remember them. I remember them very vividly. The young lady and I, we became close friends. I'm sorry, I can't think of her name all these years. Maybe it'll come back to me. But yeah, because that freshman year, I was at first in the land of Oz, some crazy, wonderfully crazy with everything going on. And then I went through this dark period. And and let me say one other thing about, we're talking about my junior life. Yes. I mentioned I had been performing before I came to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. I mentioned I performed Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto well, the year before. Well, well, there's one other thing about my first year at Juilliard. I have been playing all these big romantic works. And Erwin Freundlich felt that I need to play more Bach. I need to play more Mozart. So he didn't assign any Chopin to me. No Liszt. No Schumann. I didn't think I could play anymore. The reason for that was because those composers, you don't need octaves and arpeggios and scales and great emotion to play Bach, for example. Not like when you play Rachmaninoff. And I honestly listened to recordings of myself prior to going to Juilliard. I thought it was over. I didn't think I could play like that anymore. Because, and the the other thing was, Mrs. Ravenoff and Dorothy Early were like mothers to me. And, And I'm going to tell you something. All of this is coming back. The week before I went to Juilliard, before I entered the school, I told my mother I didn't want to go. What? And she said, yes, yes. And I said, Mrs. Ravenoff has been there for me. I don't want to leave her. My mother called her right away. I was in the room. And she said, Mrs. Ravenoff, Richard's right here with me. He doesn't want to go to Juilliard. And she said, why? Because he doesn't want to leave you. He's done so much great work with you. He wants to continue. Her response, my mother said, yes, I understand. I agree. My mother hung up the phone. My mother was the, my father was the personality. My mother was the disciplinarian. And she said, Mrs. Rabinoff has said she's kicking you out of the nest. You need another person's 
opinion in your playing. And you need to study with a man. (laughs) 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 Oh, God bless my mother. She was a disciplinarian. When it came time for them to buy me a baby grand piano, I had an upright that they were, a Wurlitzer upright they were renting. Mm-hmm. We went to a, a piano company in Newark, New Jersey called the Griffith Piano Company. I played on a chickering piano and I was playing the Mozart Sonata. After the exposition, I couldn't remember the development or the rest of the piece. Oh so I stopped. Yes. When I got home, my mother had the catalog with the picture of the piano. She came into my bedroom. She said, you want this? I'm going to pin it to your wall. Don't you ever not be able to get from the beginning of the piece of music to the end. If you want this. Beautiful. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And so she was the one. I have another funny story to tell you about my, my dear mother. There was one when I was working with Sylvia Rabinoff. She assigned a piece that was in the category of impressionistic composers. It was called The White Peacock. I still remember it. It was like nothing. Play a little more. Oh. (laughs) I had never played. I don't just see the feathers. I hear the feathers. I had never played anything like that in my life. And I didn't really want to learn it. Mm-hmm. I came to the lesson. I came to the lesson. And Mrs. Babbler said, okay, let's start with the white peacock. I haven't practiced it. Okay, well, we'll hear it next week. Second lesson. All right, I've heard the box. Let's go to the white peacock. I didn't practice it. The third lesson, she said, we're starting with the white peacock. She said, no, we're not going to start with anything. I'm not giving you a lesson today. She said, give me your mother's check. And I'm not giving you a lesson till you come back with the white peacock. And she said, your father, he dropped you off. right? This is in New York City, Riverside Drive, 33 Riverside Drive. And she said, your father goes to the movies, right? I said, yes. So see, he won't be here for two hours, right? Because her lessons were two hours long. I said, yes. Well, help me clean my house. Help me clean my house. I never told my mother what happened. Years later, decade later, I was teaching someone in my mother's house and I told them that story. My mother was in the kitchen. She came out of the kitchen, stood in the doorway and just looked at me. (laughs) Mind you, this was at least 10 years after I graduated from Juilliard, 15 years after I first learned the white peacock. She actually wanted to give me a beating right then. I know she did. I know (laughs) she did. Because I want to. (laughs) So back the following week, we I had I learned it. I learned it. Wait a minute. And this is the conclusion of the story. I learned it. After I learned it, you know what she said to me, Mrs. Rabinow? She's okay. Now you learned it. I want you to go to the Bronx Zoo and watch Peacocks for 30 minutes. Yes. A peacock does not walk the same way as a pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) In order to play this piece effectively, you have to know what a white peacock looks like. You have to know what a white peacock or any peacock looks like when they run. 
because the fan, the male, the fan will come out, but they will still run with the fan out. And so I, this is how she worked with me. This was why I didn't want to leave her yes. because of this type of study I experienced with her. I learned the Beethoven Sonata. And she said to me one day, she said, you don't understand what he went through. You don't understand the man. And she said, come with me. And we walked to the other side of the room. She said, look at that. Look at that. She said, do you know what that is? It was this gold mask. She said, that is a death mask of Beethoven. Mm. Look at it. Even in death, he was not at ease. Look at his face. Think of that when you play this sonata, The Tempest. Because now, in the, see, there was no movie about Beethoven like there is now. But when I saw the mask and she explained what it does, she said that was made when he was dead. Mm. They put the, the, the plaster over his face and then formed it. This is a copy, not the original, but it's a copy. So this is the type of study. Do you remember any of it? Do you remember it? The Beethoven, the Tempest? Yeah. yeah. And to play it, you should read The Tempest by Shakespeare. Of course. That's immediately what I thought. <laughs> Yet the second movement. The first recital I ever gave, I played that sonata. Oh. And when it was over, my mother said, she said, my family calls me Ricky. You can call me Ricky. I was called Ricky until I turned 13. And then when I turned 13, I said, I'm grown now. Call me Richard. <laughs> but, but now I want my family and friends to call me Ricky because even though, yes, I'm maestro, professor, Ricky brings me back. Mm. Ricky brings me back to where it all started. She said to me at the end of the recital, she said, the second movement, she said, That's, you played it. There is something happening there. Mm. there is something happening and and i felt what you were feeling so mm. Th that brings me to remember you were saying there are going to be several editions of your life you know yes in the book i want to go to the edition that 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 deals with the church okay and you All right. your wonderful ministry of music in the church and when did that begin how old were it you it started when you i was when you said way to the organ because not only are you a great pianist you are an amazing organist now tell us about that transition okay <laughs> i was 7 years old what and my family my family went to first baptist church in Vauxhall, new jersey mm -hmm. and I was mesmerized with the organ. They had a pipe organ, two manuals. I had never seen anything like it. It actually had keys for the feet. And so every Sunday when I left church, I would try to play the hymns I heard. And the, and the organist- this, Okay, let me just, this time you were still playing by ear, right? No, I was already taking lessons. Okay, but okay, so, okay. But I didn't have a hymn book yet. 
Yes. Okay. My my paternal grandmother, in a year or two, she gave me the Sunday school hymn book, and I began playing for the Sunday school. But I have a Facebook friend. Her name is Miss Smith, Jerry Smith. She was the organist from the church. Okay. And she and Miss Smoot and Miss Hines, they were the choir directors. They recognized my love for the piano. And I began playing the organ prelude when I was eight years old. I had one hymn, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, Forgive. And I would play that before the service on the pipe organ. I couldn't read the pedals. Of course not. <laughs> this is before service began. So this is when people were just coming in and sitting down. Yes. 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 Oh. Yes. Yes. And so that was where it began. Yes. And then my mother was one of the soloists in the choir. Mm-hmm. And every, like I said, every Sunday I came home for church, whatever I heard, I would try to play it. What about gospel music? Was there a gospel well, choir? Yes, because because Miss Moot, Miss Hine, and Jerry, they sang anthems in the choir, but they also sang gospel music. And that's how my church went <laughs> Okay. And and oh, you're gonna laugh when I tell you this. Every Christmas they had a candlelight service. I remember that service like it was yesterday. I remember the songs that were sung. They sang a song, I want to be more like Jesus. <laughs> And sing. They sang that what? song. No, I need you to go off. Go on, go on. You're... Well, I gotta tell you the story. I gotta okay, tell you great, the story. Great. Okay, <laughs> good. So, they sang it at a candlelight service. Okay. I was mesmerized. The whole church was dark except for the candles. And I was just, I was just, I can't put into words. My father had bought me a little Emini organ. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have a picture. I found a picture of it online. It's on my in my Facebook pictures. Yes, yes. And so I had all these little toys. When my family went to sleep that night, my mother had all these candles in her living room. And I put all my toys around the Emily organ. Yeah. I got matches and I lit all the candles and I had my own candlelight service. With my <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, my mother got up. She called me to her and she said, Ricky, what did you do last night? I had church, mommy. She said, what did you do? Last- I had church. I was in church. She said, no, what did you do here? I was in church. Then she said, she said did you light my candles? And I didn't say anything. She said, there could have been a tragedy. There could have been something very awful. Don't you ever, ever light my candles again. And so you may wonder, how did she know I lit the candles? It wasn't just because the wick was black. She had little angels that were candles. They had a wick out of their head. The next morning, they had no heads. That is hysterical. <laughs> I only say this, that you realize as a child how much music was a force in my life. A force in my life. Yeah. Not just something I liked. It was a force that I welcomed and I lived it. 
as a child. And so that was when the, the ministry of music began because my mother began teaching me songs that she sang in church. She was known for singing Sweet Little Jesus Boy mm. every Christmas. Mm. She sang that. And my remember, her mother was Daisy Johnson. That's right. Your first piano teacher. And, and here's another example of how things come together. Yes. I was minister of music at a church, and I had six women that I decided to present in concert. They were soloists. And they started in the back of the church singing, and then they came down the aisle singing. Mm-hmm. When the concert was over, one of the soloists came to me, and she said, Austin, your mother was crying when we were coming into the church down the aisle and I had to go to her after the concert and say, was she okay? And she said, Ricky doesn't know this. That's what I call him. His grandmother was an organist and she presented me and my three sisters in a church concert. And that's how we came in singing down the aisle. Wow. Wow. It's in my blood. It's in your blood. It's in your DNA. It really, really is. How, how much of African-American history did you get in tandem <laughs> with the European composers? Because I want my audience to know what you've done. What is classically Black? What is, what oh. is, what is this wonderful, wonderful piece, masterclass that you've curated? Can you share that? Yes, Classically Black began when I was a student of Dorothy Early's. And the reason it began then, I was in the John Thompson book, as I mentioned. Now I was in John Thompson, I think it's grade two or grade three. In the collection, there is this song. Dorothy Early said to me, that is called Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. And I saw it on the music. And it said, James Bland. She said, he was a Negro. Mm. He was a Negro. So in addition to Clemente, in addition to Bach, I was playing Carry Me Back to Old Virginia by James Bland. This, she therefore included. He was a Black man that I was playing in addition to Bach, Many Win and G. So that's where it began. Then the, I began, I learned a piece called the Juba Dance by Nathaniel yes. Dett, right? Yes. And then a miraculous miracle, blessing happened. One day, my grandfather came by the house and he had a box and he said, Ricky, This was your grandmother's music, and you need to have this. I think I was already in Juilliard. I was already in Juilliard. He was still alive. And I went through the box. On a tablet, there was an essay written, The Negro in Classical Music. Mm -hmm. My grandmother wrote this essay. In the essay, she mentioned R. Nathaniel Dent. She mentioned Marin Anderson. She mentioned uh, composers that, oh, I can't think of it, Samuel Corbett Taylor. And I was completely 
mesmerized because I felt that she was reaching out to me from the grave saying, you're doing the right thing. You're playing our music. And you know what I did? I took that tablet. I had it laminated. Can you see it? Yes, I can. That's it. On the wall. All, all oh six pages. Gosh. Did your did your grandmother attend an HBCU? Yes. And I'm embarrassed to say that I don't remember the name of it. Okay. Because what happened was that I did an interview with actually a Juilliard classmate named Carolyn Stebron. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about my grandmother. And she asked what you just said, well, where was your grandmother educated? I did not know. Mm-hmm. Well, I my mother had a cousin named Ann Hunt that yeah. was a Facebook friend. And she called, she wrote me a, a couple of months ago. She said, your grandmother and her sister went to this college. Oh, I feel so bad. I can't think of the name of it. But Dude. the thing is, but the thing is, I have to, I have to go back further. Okay, the man who started all, John Henry Walker. My grandmother's name was Daisy Walker. My grandma, my grand, great, great grandfather, John Henry Walker, was a piano player. Her father, he was a singer. He was a preacher. And I sent you his picture. He's the one with the light eyes? Yes, that's my great that's grandfather. Yes. Whoa. He played the piano. He played the piano and sang in church. He was a preacher. And highly regarded preacher. They named us. I'm sorry to yell. I'm getting excited. It's I'll calm down. No, don't calm down. <laughs> they named the street after him. There was an article that was printed when he and several other ministers met young men coming back from war. And they listed his name as the one of the celebrated preachers in the area. I found on Ancestry.com his tombstone uh, where he's buried. And so, but... That's where it began. And and the other thing is, I didn't know about him, okay? My life has been through all these blessings. My mother gave me his picture, and it was on my nightstand. But I didn't know whether he was paternal or maternal because my father's family has light eyes. Mm -hmm. And so my light-eyed sister. Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I posted the picture on Facebook and I said, does anybody know who this man is? Uh He's a relative of mine and I need to know. Ann Hunt, extremely supportive when I was a teenager. She would come to visit from Raleigh, North Carolina. And she taught me so much about music and things. She replied, she said, that is your great grandfather, John Henry Walker, pianist, singer, Preacher, your grandmother's father, Daisy Johnson's father. And so, I mean, it's a legacy. What state, what state was, were they from? South Carolina, North Carolina. Gotcha. I, I, I forget which one particularly. I can look it up and send it to you. Mm-hmm. But his picture's all around the house. When I was at the other piano, his picture's there with mm-hmm. my grandmother's there uh, mm-hmm. picture. When I made my videos, you can see them in the video watching me. I stand on so many people's shoulders. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many people's shoulders. Thanks for spending time with us. Hope you enjoyed. Come back next week for part two. Thank you for joining me. 
Thank you. I hope you've learned something. I hope you feel enlightened. I hope you feel lighter than you did before you entered. Subscribe and leave us a review. Tell us what you liked. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Tell us who you'd want to see. This is Denise Wood saying, see you next time.